Okay, if you could um, put the notes up for section from session five, but ignore the first two ones because I've talked quite a lot about rejection and self-rejection already. Um, and so I just want to... Uh, okay, so we'll leave those. Cause we've talked a lot, fair bit about rejection. Have we? We have, haven't we? Yeah. Okay. Rejection, which is the basis of Satan's kingdom and which is probably the most common pastoral problem I find with people in our churches that just don't feel they belong. And uh, say it sometimes is demonic where demons get hold of that rejection and just make you constantly feel that. So we'll move on from that. Um, and I want to talk about one or two other strongholds, but we'll just see how far we get because I want to pray for you as well. So I just want to feel my way in this session. And... Uh, that's quite fun, really. I've been feeling my way quite through quite a few of them, really, in terms of the examples to give. But I've actually covered most of the notes in the session so far, which is quite amazing, really. <laughs> okay, so the stronghold of passivity. Uh, a sort of an attitude now an attitude which is that not really wanting to take initiative now I want to talk about it in a totally different culture then I'll bring it back to how it affects us see um, where I've I'm working a lot of time in Russia now, and in Russia they've had oppression for generations, as I think I said yesterday. But the result of that has been it's very hard to get people to take initiatives, and it's very, uh, and so, and they are, they need permission before doing anything. Now, so that's obvious. That's a culture where passivity is a massive issue. And basically, leaders are people that break through passivity in order to take initiative. And then the rest are quite happy for them to do that. And so I have to deal with that stronghold quite a lot. But in Western culture, it is a little bit different in that sometimes you can find men who are tremendously initiative-taking in their job, but when it comes to family or spiritual things and church life, somehow all the all the initiative taking that they had in a work context oozes out of them and they become passive. Because passivity, now I'm going to make a sexist remark now. You never ever hear anyone else ever do that in this church. But I'm going to, I'm going to make a sexist remark. The stronghold of passivity is a stronghold that particularly affects men. <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right. And it's ever been thus. It was the problem in the Garden of Eden. So it says, well, after Eve had taken the fruit, it says she gave some to her husband who was with her. What was he doing? <laughs> I mean, he was there. He hadn't sort of gone somewhere else to, you know, 
slaughter out a leopard or something. He was, he was, he was there with her. But somehow was passive. And now in the Middle Ages, when they used to have lists of deadly sins, one of them called sloth or acidy, A-C-C-I-D-I-E, was one of the things they had to repent regularly of. And in the sort of in Anglican churches, orders of service, you're always confessing not just the things you have done, but the things that you have not done that you ought to have done. Okay? We aren't some good on that. Because it's, it's not a question just of, well, I haven't done anything wrong. For many, outside of their work scene, amongst men, they haven't done anything right either. And he said, well, I've provided for the family. Yeah, good. You meant to. But there's this... And, and so they identified that as a particular problem. And I say, Adam was like it in the Garden of Eden because along with passivity comes blame shifting. Okay? So when... Adam was caught out in his passivity. He was doing nothing to prevent Eve taking the fruit. God then asked him, what have you done, Adam? And he answered, which almost every generation of males has answered since, this woman you gave me, she. (laughs) And so passivity and blame-shifting seem to go together, particularly in the male of the species. I remember I referred to the fact I did a stronghold stuff in Mexico, and I actually did this one because, again, uh, the Mexican male is macho and passive. (laughs) You know, strange mixture. Same here. Well, you're Mexicans, really. Okay. (laughs) So there was a huge macho culture... Yet, an unwillingness to take initiative when it really matters. And so I remember teaching on this, and then I did, I, I, I had much more time because it was a three day conference. So um, I'd done ministry times after most of the sessions. And when I did the session on which, in which passivity came, I called for all the other things that I dealt with. Um, in that particular session on that occasion, but didn't call people forward for passivity. And... They wouldn't have come. They wouldn't have come, no. And this... No, no, hold on. This woman said afterwards, came up to me quite indignant afterwards. She said, you never ask men to come forward over passivity. I said, oh, no, sorry. I'll do it next time. She said, yeah, because I was ready to push my husband forward. (laughs) But it is quite serious. And it's one of the reasons often for dearth of Christian leadership. Okay? Somehow, I don't know what happens when you switch the car off in the drive. <laughs> okay? You've been full of initiative at work and on the road coming home. And... Uh, <laughs> But switch the ignition off and somehow no longer willing to take initiative for the spiritual and other security of your family and for all the things that need doing for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I found in societies where there have been huge problems like the Russian women coped with the fall of communism much better than the Russian men. The Russian women then realised, OK, we've got to get out. Some of them had two or three jobs. We have to, you know, it's a different world now. Everything's not 
as it was, and the men sort of just thought about it for a while, you know, <laughs> uh, other than the few who grabbed all the assets and became uh, oligarchs. But, uh, <laughs> but the, this is a, a real issue. So Gladys Aylward, the missionary to China, was once asked why she never married. She said, God had a man for me, but he didn't have the guts to go to China. Interesting comment. Okay. William Booth said, all my best men are women. <laughs> okay. Now, that could be taken both ways, so be careful. <laughs> Come on, this is the last session. I've got to keep you awake somehow. For the sake of those listening on the tape, they're all nodding off. Okay, no. <laughs> and so, I believe God wants to free men particularly from this. And cause you... You see, it's undermining the beauty of the complementary relationship between men and women. You know, I believe men and women are equal, but complementary in their relationship. And though it's very open to women to take initiatives, we want to encourage that. We're not saying taking initiative is a masculine quality and not a feminine one. No, it can be a feminine one as well. But if men are not taking God-given leadership in the areas which they should, then somehow the beauty and attractiveness of feminine initiative taking gets almost there comes a distorted picture of the true equality of what there should be do you understand what I'm saying I'm not in any way suggesting women don't take initiative praise God they do and praise God they have done over the years <laughs> but there needs to be a balanced picture of this when it comes to taking responsibility in the kingdom of God. Because that can be a stronghold. In the stronghold of fear. It's very interesting. If you read King Saul, he was an anointed leader, but failed as a man of God because he disobeyed God. And we tend to think, okay, yes, Saul disobeyed God. But each time, it, each time it talks about him disobeying, it was as a result of fear. 1 Samuel 13, verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. In other words, instead of giving strong leadership to his troops... He was descending to their level of fear. Then when he failed, that was uh, when Saul disobeyed God because Samuel was late for the meeting. So there's a good precedent for being late to the meetings. Uh, Samuel got delayed coming to offer the sacrifice and so Saul offered it instead. Then in 1 Samuel 15:24, the context was the failure to wipe out the Amalekites. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. And then when he consulted the spiritualist medium, the witch of Endor, the reason, it says, is when, Paul saw the, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Okay, so disobedience came through fear. 
Now, fear is a stronghold in some cultures, very strong, particularly cultures that are very, very superstitious. Obviously, there people are controlled by fear. Okay, and if you do this, the, this will happen to you and so on. But fear leads to sin. Fear and faith are powerful and opposite motivators. They're also both very contagious. So in the Israelite army, one of the provisions was, if people are afraid, let them go home. So that's good. But actually, it was realising, because if you have fearful people in the army, then all will be affected. There's types of fear. Fear of what other people think. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I remember I was at a prayer meeting in Denmark and uh, the Holy Spirit came and the guy who was leading the church there fell under the power of the Holy Spirit to the floor. And uh, again, I went over because falling to the floor is not always good. Okay. It's not good if it's manipulated. And it's not good if actually it is almost hiding the issue that needs to be resolved. And so he fell to the floor, but it actually it wasn't... It was the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was coming to encounter something. But it was actually, I felt, demonic, because the Bible says, now please don't misunderstand this, the Bible says at one place the demons fell down before Jesus. That means it must have been in the people. So falling can be under the power of the Holy Spirit, and simply a blessing and an anointing and an empowering, and it can be something else. Just throw that in. Don't worry about falling, though. It's okay. But the um, and so this guy fell down. I thought, no, this is not good. And I felt I got a word of knowledge for him. I didn't know him really very well at that time. I've known him since well. And uh, he, I felt. This is a spirit of the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare. And he was actually being greatly hindered in his ministry because of his fear of man. So I commanded the spirit of the fear of man to leave him, which he did. It was a there was a tremendous manifestation of expulsion, and he got up. His first words were, we don't believe in that. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, a demon just left me, but we don't believe demons are any of our believers. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we talked that through a little bit. And <laughs> it was an interesting comment. Uh, and uh, praise God, he's one of the most effective people in deliverance ministry I know now. But it was the fear of man was hindering his, his, his leadership gift. And so it can be that. Fear of man brings a snare. Fear of getting it wrong, fear of getting hurt, fear of dark powers, which many cultures have, fear of the future, fear for the families, and there could also be fear as a result of control, that you don't want to get out of it. Now, the stronghold of anger which we've alluded to, but I just want to, I just want to tell you that we're, because we've touched on this quite a bit already, um, so I'm not going to spend long on it, just to tell you another story, because um, this is, illustrates the way God can work on this. A friend of mine um, was going to lead some stronghold seminars in his church, which is quite a number of years ago, and uh, Got just like meetings, just like this, he decided to run them in his church to set people free from strongholds. And as he was walking to the meeting, 
God said to him, um, I've heard him tell this story publicly, so it's fine. God said to him, what about your anger? Isn't that a stronghold? And he sort of dismissed it. And he got to meet with his ministry team beforehand, because they had a ministry team, and got to pray with people afterwards. And God kept speaking to him. So he said, in the end, he said to his ministry team, will you pray for me before I minister to deal with the stronghold of anger? So they started to pray. As he, as they started to pray, he said he remembered an incident came into his mind when he was on his eighth birthday. See, this is how the Holy Spirit works. We don't have to dig around. We don't have to go through everybody's birthday until you get to number eight. And ah, oh, that's the one where it happened. <laughs> what happened when you were one year old? What no, you don't have to do that. The Holy, <laughs> the Holy Spirit just brought back to him a memory of his eighth birthday. And he was an only child, and he had loads of birthday cards on his eighth birthday, and his mum said to him, well, you're a big boy now, you read them to me. So he started reading them. Then he came to one that he couldn't read. It was probably done in, you know, cards are sometimes done in funny writing, aren't they? You know? So he couldn't read it. And she said to him, you're, you're obviously not working hard at school, you can't read, you, you know, it's hopeless. You might say, how, how do people do these things? People do these things, right? And he said he got so angry that he ripped up that card and walked out of the room. Now, on his eighth birthday, a stronghold of anger got into his life. And they prayed... About that, he forgave his mum, got set free, and he said, it's been amazing since. And I've heard his wife say that as well. So, <laughs> and so, a stronghold can just get hold of someone in a moment like that. You might say, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair, but it happened. Okay, in fact, I was telling that story somewhere and another guy came up to me and said, on my eighth birthday, something, I'd forgotten about it, but something happened that affected my life and I prayed about that as well. It's funny, isn't it? Just tell a story and I'm not saying all of you now think back. <laughs> what happened on my eighth birthday? Because God will touch what is necessary for you. Okay, that's the wonder of this ministry within the body of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is here. And he's working to set people free. Okay, I just want to, can you go up to number eight, stronghold of control? Because again, some of the others I've touched on. Okay, the stronghold of control... essence of witchcraft is control. People do sp put witchcraft spells on people in order to control their lives. Okay, and controlling spirits and witchcraft spirits are very close. It's weapons are manipulation and domination. Ungodly authority binds us up. Now, it can come in lots of different ways. It can come in a whole culture. It can come through bureaucracy. You know, bureaucracy is a spirit, I sometimes think. <laughs> you know, all these people that get sort of high, get important positions. They're not important anywhere else, but they're important when they're behind an office desk and able to say no and go and do this and go that. But, uh, um, that's particularly so in some of the countries I'm working in. You know, bureaucracy, just go through this and that and that. 
And so that's a way of controlling people. But it can also come through exceptional parental or wider family dominance. And I've often seen demonic manifestations when I've prayed for people in this way. Manipulation in a family operates on the same principle as witchcraft. There can be control in little things. Um, sometimes there's a cultural gateway for it where particular people have been controlled by others. But I remember in our church in 1994, like in many churches around the world, there was a visitation of the Holy Spirit associated with Toronto originally. And we had an exciting time. And there was one lady who was a friend of Scylla and mine, and she and her husband, and she said I, she just could not cope with it. I said, what's, what's the problem? She said, you can't control it. I said, ah, oh, that's interesting. Come round, you know, we'll have a chat. So uh, we, we chatted it through, and we, she talked about the domineering control of her mother and of her grandmother, so it gone right through the family. And she said, I hate it, but I'm beginning, my kids are now approaching teenagers, and I'm beginning to try and control them in the same way as I was controlled, you remember? Because bringing up children is a gradual release. Okay. And... Uh, so we prayed with her and anger came out but also the spirit of control and she told us afterwards the first time she noticed she was different was that she went to a shop to buy something to wear and she picked up something which was nice and took it out and she suddenly realised for the first time in her life she hadn't thought oh, my mother wouldn't like this and put it back. Well, she was, you know, a grown woman with her own teenage children. But it had been so strong. And there are families that operate that way. Often it can form tension in a marriage where one of the, fam the family and one of the marriage partners is a controlling family. And they have to dominate everything. I I ministered uh, I remember ministering into a particular culture where control in the family was huge and I remember a woman come to me who was a believer an older lady came to me afterwards and repented actually she said she was a Christian going to one of our churches and she said, when I couldn't any longer control my sons through simply my own domination, I actually, and I'm tragic to admit it as a Christian, I went to a witch doctor in order to get some spell put on them to keep under my control. Because control... Where is a very powerful thing that people feel they have to do. Once when I was ministering on this subject, it's one of the few occasions where I've had a demon visit me in the night and threaten me that if I spoke on this subject again, he would destroy my family. And so I had to deal with that and face up to it and say, no, I'm, he said, don't ever preach. The demon said to me, don't ever preach on this again. As you can see, I didn't take any notice. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, no, we had to deal with that. We had to, I had to get prayer, had to understand that we submit to God and thereby we resist the devil. But this controlling thing, and 
it happens particularly in cultures where family is strong, which is good, but can also be controlling, which is bad. Um, one place I was ministering, they said, around here, they said, we say a man's not free until his mother dies. Okay. <laughs> and they want their sons to get married as soon as possible, so that there's almost like a servant or slave for the mother-in-law. You see, biblically, we need to understand, and this isn't a whole seminar on family life, but I just want to touch these points in relation to this. Family is ordained of God, expressed in different ways in different cultures, but just like all other human institutions, it was subject to the fall. So it became an institution of conflict. Okay, between Adam and Eve, between Cain and Abel, and idolatry, which, where a family claims a loyalty and control that can only rightly be exercised by God. Understand? Male-female relationships within the family came under the curse. So there's an authority conflict, which is described in Genesis 3, verse 16. Original concept of family was releasing. So it says a man left father and mother to be united to his wife. Now I have to minister on this in cultures where it is normal for there to be fam extended family homes. So where people don't actually leave physically and it would be culturally inappropriate for me to push that and economically non-viable. So I have to teach how to do this in cultures where you're actually still living with your parents, but not under control. It's quite tough. So the original concept of family was releasing. And devotion to Christ must take precedence over family loyalties. If family is to be taken up rightly, because if you don't care for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, but you don't care for your family because of control, you care for your family because of the compassions of Christ and you're wanting to serve Christ in that context. Okay. So, Jesus, as well as resisting the devil in the wilderness, also resisted family domination and exhibited how as a single adult he could walk free of his mother's and family control. So, I mean, when I preach this in some cultures, and I say, imagine, imagine there's a crowded room, and Jesus is preaching, and he's been going on so long he hasn't even had time to eat. Thank you for all the people that have brought me bits of cake during breaks, even though people were talking to me. So I really appreciate it. You've been great. But... Uh, you don't have time to eat. I can understand that, you know, because sometimes people are just pressing on you all the time. And it says his mother and brothers thought he'd gone mad. And so it says they came to take control of him or take charge of him. And you just imagine it. And someone comes to the door, a crowded house, and the sort of... Someone at, the, someone at the door has to push forward to Jesus and say, Jesus, your mother's outside. Now, many of the places that I speak on this, because we acted out a bit and we get pretty drama, drama about it, and then Jesus says, who is my mother? I mean, that's one of the most offensive things you could say in sort of Eastern culture. Who is my mother? And he looked around and said, whoever does the will of my father is my mother and sister and brother. What Jesus was doing was not only, because Jesus didn't marry. So when a person marries, they become, they come out from a release from the family. But also, as a single adult, Jesus walked free of family control. Now, 
say, why are you spending a lot of time on that with us? Because although it's a cultural issue in some of the places I work, I find in Western culture there are sometimes families that are controlling like that. And there could even be some represented here, where you feel, I'm never quite free. And that becomes a stronghold. It's not that you're not to care for your family. Of course you are. As I say, if you don't, you're worse than an unbeliever. But you do that as an adult, either as a single adult or as a married person, with the freedom to do that in obedience to Christ, not because you're controlled to do it. Okay. And it can exhibit in all sorts of ways, like that silly... You know, we'll have to give that illustration about the woman, lady who can now choose what clothes she wanted. I said, what a stupid thing. I mean, that doesn't matter, does it? Just what clothes she want. But it represented something huge for her. It represented freedom in the spirit. It represented all sorts of things. Because this controlling thing had stopped her. Well, there's many other things I could say. Yeah. Okay. Let me, yeah. Again, I've got a whole seminar on what we call the Jezebel spirit, which, uh, and um, I do actually refer to it in these notes, but, yeah, <laughs> okay, it was next. But this is just a reference to it. The Jezebelic spirit is something that I have encountered a lot. What it is, is where, and Jezebel, remember, was trying to, was effectively taking control of the land of Israel and leading it to idolatry. But she did that through manipulation, sexual perversion, and control through anger. Okay. And the same spirit, because you find in the book of Revelation, it says, I have against you, he said to one church, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, that doesn't mean that Jezebel had suddenly popped up again, or that there was a woman in that church who happened to be called Jezebel. It's rather that that same spirit, which seeks to... Uh, control the situation and lead into immorality was at work in that church. Now, I will talk about it. I just, yeah, I will. Uh, I thought no, I wouldn't, but now it's come off. I'll just say a few things about it, although, as I say, this is summarising a whole seminar on how to deal with it and all that sort of thing. But the... The, word, the name Jezebel means un, un, unwilling or unable or without cohabitation. Cannot live with anything unless it manipulates and dominates the relationship. And the Jezebel spirit is like that. The Jezebel spirit can, be op, can operate through men or women. You know, sometimes when we say because it's Jezebel, we say, well, this is, must operate in women. No, it operates in men and women. And it is where there either becomes, an, it can operate in a church where there becomes an alternative power base which manipulates what is to happen in that church and has to effectively control everything and everything has to be approved of there. It can also work through manipulative leadership. So I've known pastors who operate out of the spirit of Jezebel. Usually they've also been in immorality and uh, therefore, because they're in immorality, they can't operate out of clean power, but m operate out of the unholy power of the spirit of Jezebel. And uh, it, can, it can, also, can also operate through families. And the test of the spirit of Jezebel is mainly the, the almost... Impossible to stand up against anger when crossed. Okay? So Jezebel will usually manipulate things, 
But if you go against the spirit of Jezebel, then there's absolutely massive anger that seeks to control the situation. You know, in situations where people control through, through their anger and people don't dare to stand up against it. It, re, it results in men being emasculated, whether it's operating through a man or a woman. So I've known where pastors have operated in this spirit, the other leaders in the church, even the other male leaders in the church, hopeless at taking initiative, can't often even pray out properly or anything. You know, it's just... And so it's a extreme manifestation of the spirit of control. Okay? And does need... And can become a stronghold. Some cultures can be affected by it as a whole culture. Um, and I think probably the culture where I was handling the spirit of control was like that when I then got threatened by this demonic power that appeared to me. Okay. Yeah? Going back to two points, when a man leaves his mother and father... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. In fact, there's one culture I ministered into, which is matriarchal, formerly matriarchal, where they say, we've got it right, because it's only the man that has to leave, and then he comes under his mother-in-law's control. (laughs) So they use that scripture to show they've got it right. And uh, in that particular culture... um, Men can't inherit property, only women can, and the bulk of the inheritance goes to the youngest daughter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't tell them where. <laughs> I'm not going to. Okay. I also, in that culture, had to deal with probably the worst sort of dark sexual stuff that I've ever had to minister to. But uh, they use that scripture. But you see, what it is, you have to, you have to, context, to contextualise scripture into where we are and you have to understand scripture in its original context. So it's in its original context, it was given to a people where the woman would anyway leave and join the man's family. So that was the context. As I was teaching somewhere or other here recently, I think it was the leaders, I don't know, I can't remember. But Genesis is a series of worldview stories to put correct worldview into the people. Now, what Moses is teaching, therefore, there uh, is, okay, it was done anyway that women left father and mother, he was saying, a man should as well. Okay, because that's the context on what that scripture is built. So right through uh, Middle Eastern history, the woman has left to go to the man. Okay, so, so therefore Jesus is saying, even in this, co- sorry, Moses is saying, even in this con- that context, man should leave the authority of father and mother in order to properly care for his wife because a man who is still under the authority of his father and mother can't care for his wife properly. Because in the end, he will prefer, he will, his decisions will be based on a preference for what his mother is saying. And there are many situations like that. Even in Western culture, where people's final, a man's final decision is really based on what his mum told him to do. You know, when I take a marriage service, we have both parents, both sets of parents giving away simply because the problem often isn't the father of the bride but the mother of the bridegroom. So, <laughs> you... <laughs> so, we have both sets of parents doing the releasing. Okay. Yeah. You put the passivity thing of many men. Yes. Jezebel, who got 
Yes. That's right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Jezebel does that. Jezebel induces passivity in men. And yes, causes you to fear. I mean, Elijah, I mean, Elijah was a pretty bold sort of guy, wasn't he, really? It's not going to rain except by my word. Who of us would get up and say that? Okay, well, Elijah was pretty bold, known as the troubler of Israel. He did a battle with the prophets of Baal. He wasn't scared. Then when Jezebel says, I'm going to get you, he ran for his life and sank into depression. Elijah. And that spirit comes round and round. John the Baptist encountered it and lost his life. Okay, there's the same spirit operating in Herod's family. Uh, and so, it's a, yeah, a strong, a strong thing which we have to face and sometimes have to face in churches. And I've had to sometimes set churches free from that spirit. Okay. Well, I say there's lots of other things I could say. I want to spend a little bit more time later on on sexual sin, which I haven't done enough of, just to say that uh, sexual sin is addictive and therefore becomes a stronghold. Uh, Whether that applies to pornography or to... um, multiple sexual relationships. Also, uh, promiscuity. Can some People in the world will say, well, you know, if you've got plenty of experience, then you'll be better when you actually get married. Often the reverse is true. So promiscuity leads to, can lead to, without ministry and help, not having a good marriage relationship. Also, there's some, there is something particularly weakening about sexual sin. Um, Paul says every other sin, there is something different about sexual sin. It's not the worst sin. The worst sin is pride, if there is a category. But sexual sin is, partic- is different from others. Paul says all other sins a man can, a man commits is outside of his body, and, you know, quite what the language is getting at, but what is clear is, is not clear, but what is clear is that Paul saw sexual sin as particularly weakening and undermining of who we are. And <laughs> it's all right. So <laughs> Uh, and it's particularly weakening in the church. And uh, has lots of consequences. So in David's life, although he was forgiven, the consequences of sexual sin ran through the generations. Okay? And it does build up strongholds. And the other thing about sexual sin is that... Um, Paul, again, said he who is joined to a prostitute is one flesh with her. He's using that particular intimate expression. It's not just a physical encounter. One flesh demonstrated a unity of body, soul, and spirit, really. And so he said, you know, um, now, and, and so there is a particular grip of sexual sin for which people need to be set free. And also, sexual sin creates what, this isn't a biblical word, but I can't think of a better one, is what we call soul ties between people. I remember counselling a couple, and their marriage wasn't going well, and uh, the husband had had a particularly promiscuous lifestyle before they were converted and particularly there was one woman who was quite a lot older than him with whom he'd had a regular sexual relationship 
and who almost dominated his life. And then he got married somebody else. Uh, got converted, married somebody else. Um, but this, the soul tie, the spiritual joining of his past life, particularly to this older woman, was meaning that he wasn't really able to freely give himself to his wife. And I remember we prayed, we saw fantastic deliverance, we cut him off from the various soul ties of these wrong relationships, and his wife again told me some weeks afterwards that the relationship is totally different, you know? Because these sort of sins can create strongholds in our lives. Now, I'm not wanting people to feel condemned on that, there's forgiveness, but you have to also understand that often, not always, often sexual sin creates a stronghold which, it, which we need to be set free from because there are particular demonic powers at work behind it. Okay? Right. So I'm going to finish there. Uh, so this is... I know I should have a nice proper ending and <laughs> really bring you through. And, uh, but what we're going to do now, because we've, we've, we've got a, a maximum of another hour. If we don't take that long, that's fine. But I've been talking a lot. I've been talking about some pretty horrible stuff. So we need to focus on Jesus. So we'll focus on him, exalt his name, purify our hearts by worshipping him, then I'm going to lead, uh, invite the Holy Spirit to move, and we're going to see how he, God leads us in terms of praying for you. Um, some of it will be equipping of you, some of it may well be dealing with issues. We're just going to see how the Holy Spirit does it. I, I'm totally dependent on him. I'm not an expert. I, you know, I... I'm not uh, just going to say exactly what's going to happen because I'm totally dependent on the Holy Spirit for this. But it's important we worship Jesus first. So let's do that. Let's stand together, can we? And really focus on him. Don't focus on all I've been saying. Focus on him.